Hello, I'm Sharon Krauss, and this is Preternatural Investigations, a podcast about things that are strange, but not too strange. The marvellous things that lie between the mundane and the miraculous. I'm a musician with a background in academic philosophy, a rationalist who believes there is magic, mystery and meaning to be found in the world around us. My title nods towards Ludwig Wittgenstein, and my approach owes something to William James's inquiries into religious experience and Mark Fisher's explorations of the weird and the eerie. Come with me into the realm of the preternatural. Episode 5 Two Ways of Thinking About the Past. In this episode, I'll turn from magical fiction to a related genre, the ghost story, in particular the ghost stories of M.R. James. The delicious shiver we get from reading ghost stories and eerie tales is a close cousin of the kind of thrill I've been talking about related to stories of wonder and magic. This shiver is, like the thrill of the wicker man, different to the chill of the horrific. Mark Fisher characterises the weird and the eerie as being concerned with the strange, which he contrasts with the horrific. The antiquarian settings of M.R. James's ghost stories, old country houses, echoey churches, dusty libraries, as well as the timeless and evocative East Anglian landscape, create an unsettling environment and seem natural habitats for ghosts, demons, and other malevolent forces. James's protagonists are academics, museum curators or clergymen, antiquaries like himself who spend their time deciphering manuscripts, examining antique carvings, visiting remote places, and searching out items of historical interest. We might naturally assume that the antique plays an essential role in James's and many other ghost stories, that what makes the stories eerie and spine-tingling is in part due to their being set in old, dark places where ancient parchments, notebooks and treasures are to be found. Yet, in his short essay on writing ghost stories, Ghosts Treat Them Gently, James criticises the tendency to set ghost stories in the past, in haunted castles or mysterious mansions, and stresses the importance of more ordinary, contemporary settings, saying, the more readily appreciable the setting is to the ordinary reader, the better. How are we to make sense of what seems like a contradiction between James's theory and his practice? Thinking about how James's stories differ from the more cliched, gothic, haunted tales he dismisses will lead me to distinguish between two contrasting approaches to the past. M.R. James's first collection of ghost stories was entitled Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, and it's hard to think of a story by him that doesn't involve an old parchment, book or treasure or take place in a location with a history. Here are some examples. K. 
Canon Alberic's scrapbook in the story of the same name, containing 7th century biblical illuminations and other priceless old documents. The parchment with ancient runes on it that summons a demon in casting the runes. The Queen Anne house in Suffolk with its old ash tree and witch's curse in the ash tree. The Anglo-Saxon crown unearthed in a warning to the curious and its ghostly guardian. What role does all this ancientness play? Is it essential? One might think that the eeriness or atmosphere of mystery James creates is dependent on the ancientness of his settings, that less familiar places or times will be inherently more appropriate for ghost stories. But this assumption betrays a lack of imagination about that which lies closer to home. Consider how unnerving is so much of what happens in the small town of Royston Vasey in the TV series The League of Gentlemen. Royston Vasey is a banal and modern setting, but strangeness abounds. The creators of The League of Gentlemen, Rhys Shearsmith, Steve Pemberton, Mark Gatiss and Jeremy Dyson, based Royston Vasey on places familiar to them and to us. And Royston Vasey is eerie in part because of its familiarity. Because it makes us wonder what's going on behind closed doors in the real towns we spend time in. Though Royston Vasey is a very different setting to the churches, museums and country houses of M.R. James, both James and the team behind the League of Gentlemen are using the kind of places they know and can bring vividly to life. The libraries and churches of James's stories are as normal and familiar to him and his circle of Cambridge dons and students as the semi-detached houses, shops and job centres of Royston Vasey are to us. This observation helps us to see how James's settings and subject matter differ from those used in the stories he's critical of, such as the historical novels of William Harrison Ainsworth, with their votaresses in mouldering vestments who glide about passages to little purpose. James's stories are rich in detail and informed by his knowledge of the past, and this is what's lacking in the ghost stories he's critical of which, instead, resort to clichés and stereotypes about the past. In James's stories, the settings and the ghosts encountered in them are realistic and distinctive. I suspect it's the use of clichés and stereotypes about the past that James objects to in the ghost stories he dislikes, then, not the use of the ancient, per se. What matters most to him is that settings and the ghosts they contain be realistic and compelling. His main concern seems to be that we create convincing ghosts, not one-dimensional spooks, and that this is harder to do the further removed in time a ghost is from the seer or the writer. Write about what you know is a fundamental rule of writing. 
When we write from experience, we have a wealth of detail to draw on. When we create fictional characters that are far removed from anything we've had experience of, on the other hand, we're unlikely to create distinctive and nuanced characters and will resort to stereotypes. Ghosts in ghost stories are characters like any others in this respect. What is it that leads ghost story writers to stray from what they know into unfamiliar realms? What leads them to look to remote places and times for the mysterious and the ghostly, the magical and the miraculous? This tendency seems to be a form of exoticism, similar to the Orientalism or exoticizing of the East Edward Said drew our attention to in his groundbreaking study, Orientalism. The Orient, Said says, was almost a European invention and has been since antiquity a place of romance, exotic beings, haunting memories and landscapes remarkable experiences. The Orient is one of Europe's deepest and most recurring images of the other. Just as Westerners may be tempted to romanticize the East in this way, we may fall into the trap of treating the past as a strange and mysterious place, an other onto which we can project our fantasies. I'll call this exoticizing of the past, ancientism. The past can seem to have a mystique, an aura of mystery and romance that the present lacks, or we may see the past as containing more of the magical or miraculous than the present. Those who believe that the Bible is the word of God may imagine that there was a time when God took a more active role in the world, when miracles occurred and prophets were truly inspired. The texts and relics we have from that blessed era may be treated in a talismanic way, connecting us to God, though he is no longer directly accessible to us. In those looking for some kind of spiritual guidance, there's a tendency to believe in wise ancients of some sort, whether they be prophets, witches, ancient Egyptians, Atlanteans, or aliens from another galaxy. Those who are drawn to non-Christian religions or New Age spiritualities are just as likely to feel the pull of this kind of ancientism as followers of more mainstream religions. There are pagans who believe in a pre-Christian matriarchal golden age and who claim to follow the ancient religion or craft of that era, for example. The founders of new religions tend to claim ancient source texts or lineages. Joseph Smith based Mormonism on teachings he claimed to have translated from ancient golden plates an angel helped him to find. Gerald Gardner, the founder of modern Wicca, claimed to have been initiated into an ancient witchcraft coven. In all likelihood, Smith wrote the Book of Mormon himself, and Gardner invented Dorothy Clutterbuck, the witch who was supposed to have initiated him, and himself wrote the rituals invocations and initiations that became the foundations of modern Wicca. 
kind of ancientism is at work here. The past is seen to have an authenticity that the present lacks. Most of us feel the pull of this tendency to some extent, including M.R. James, I would guess. Why else is a parchment with ancient runes on it used to summon the demon in casting the runes, rather than a scrap of paper inscribed with words written in modern English? Why is this tendency so tempting? What makes us so ready to see the past through this kind of exoticizing lens? There is a deep-seated need that gives rise to ancientism, orientalism, and other forms of exoticizing. We yearn for meaning, magic, and mystery, and if we're unable to find those things in the world around us, rather than giving up on them, we may attempt to locate them elsewhere. We imagine that distant times or places are fundamentally different from the here and now, and eagerly fall into romanticizing those times or places making them the loci of all we long for and fail to find in our own lives. But if we reflect, surely we'll recognize that the past and the distant cannot be fundamentally different from the here and now. They are on a continuum with it. So if there's no meaning, magic or mystery in the world we live in, we're deluding ourselves if we hope to find any in the past. We're just fooling ourselves into thinking things must have been different in the past because we're too far removed from it to be confronted with the truth that there never was a golden age and that if there's no meaning, magic or mystery to be found in the modern world that's because the world is empty of meaning, magic and mystery. What's at work behind ancientism Orientalism and exoticizing in general, then, is a downgrading of the local and a fear that there is no meaning, magic, or mystery to be found in our lives. Rather than facing this fear and becoming nihilists, we attempt to avoid a confrontation with meaninglessness by resorting to a form of exoticism according to which meaning, magic, and mystery are located in places that are less open to scrutiny than the world around us. Instead of succumbing to the temptation to exoticize, though, shouldn't we challenge the nihilistic background assumption that's at work here? The assumption that the world we live in is devoid of meaning, magic and mystery. If, as seems the case, there is no valid reason for believing that though the present can't contain meaning, magic and mystery, the past or the distant can, then we must either become nihilists, believing there's no magic, mystery or meaning to be found anywhere, or we must consider the possibility that the magic, mystery and meaning we long for can be found more locally. And if we're open to the possibility of finding meaning, magic and mystery in the world around us, in our own lives, not projecting our need for them onto the past, seeing it as some exotic other, our relationship with the past will be different, more balanced, more based in reality. 
instead of burdening it with our hopes, needs and expectations, projecting our romantic fantasies upon it, we'll be open to it, take an interest in it, make discoveries about it. Let's return to M.R. James's antiquarian tendencies. James's approach to the past is not exoticizing. He studies the past, unravels its mysteries, and it is vividly real to him. When we approach the past through his eyes, through the eyes of the historian, archaeologist, folklorist or archivist, we do something very different to the kind of exoticizing ancientism I've been talking about. Instead of a distancing occurring between us and the past, we connect with it. The past is continuous with, and to some extent accessible to the present. The past doesn't imbue the present with the meaning, magic and mystery it lacks. Rather, past and present alike contain meaning, magic and mystery. A parallel may help. If we feel our lives to be empty and yearn for a romantic partner to fulfil us, we'll burden potential partners with a heavy load and our relationships will be strained and unhealthy. If, on the other hand, we come to a relationship with an awareness of the meaning and magic in our own lives, we can see our partner in the same way. We can recognise the magic they bring to the partnership, as well as our own. The past, like a lovable and interesting partner, can fascinate and beguile us without our having to romanticise or exoticise it. Our connection with it, like our relationships with other people, is one of the many ingredients that combine to make our lives meaningful and magical. A healthy connection with the past is important and nourishing to us. Another author whose fiction is informed by a detailed knowledge of the past is Penelope Lively, the children's author whose work I touched on in the previous episode. As well as The Wild Hunt of Hagworthy, Lively's other works of children's fiction deal with the relationship between past and present, with her protagonists often uncovering aspects of the past in order to make sense of the present. In his introduction to the 2004 edition of The House at Norham Gardens, Philip Pullman writes, There is an invisible character who haunts a great deal of Penelope Lively's work, Perhaps it's going too far to call him, her, it, a character. That invisible presence is time. Lively's most well-known children's book is The Ghost of Thomas Kemp, a ghost story in which an old bottle is dislodged and broken by builders and the ghost of a 17th century magician released from it. 
the idea that the past is tangible, in some sense still available to us, is something Lively's fiction conveys with the help of ghosts, fossils, old houses full of generations of belongings, standing stones, museum artefacts, and so on. Like M.R. James, Lively has antiquarian leanings, mainly of an archaeological bent. Her survey of landscape history, the presence of the past, is a guide to interpreting the signs of the past that are there to be found in the landscape around us. For Lively, landscape history has a twofold value. It enables us to learn more about the past, and over and above that, it gives an extra dimension to the world about us. Charles Butler, in his study of British fantasy writers, describes Lively's view of Britain as a place in which the past is imminent and visible. The landscape of Britain is particularly rich in remains and signs of a many-layered past, a palimpsest containing natural and man-made time capsules at every turn. Growing up in such a landscape, it's relatively easy to feel connected to the past. In some places, the past persists and intrudes on the present. At Stonehenge, we can touch stone structures that were built thousands of years ago. At King's College, Cambridge, we can walk in M.R. James's footsteps as well as in the footsteps of countless other scholars who have studied there since the 15th century. Wandering in a ruined and overgrown abbey gives us a tangible experience of the passage of time, and so on. As well as the landscape around us giving this sense of the past persisting into the present, there are other things that persist and offer continuity and connection in this way. Some of them physical artefacts, others ideas, traditions, stories or songs. M.R. James's stories are examples, as are folk tales and songs, and folk traditions like the Abbot's Bromley Horn Dance and the Padstow Obios Day, performed year after year. The peculiar magic of folk traditions will be the subject of my next episode. What I'm talking about here is related to what Rob Young, when writing about British film, and also about what he calls British visionary music, calls the antiquarian eye. This is the sense of the past lying just behind the present the pattern under the plough, as folklorist George Ewart Evans put it. Jung equates this approach with nostalgia though, which I think is wrong. We don't yearn for the past in a nostalgic way if we're connected to it, sensing its presence. I've drawn a contrast between two different ways of thinking about the past. The first, which I've called ancientism, is a way of exoticizing the past, of looking to it for the things our own lives lack. 
The second sees the past and the present as on a continuum and allows for a real connection to the past. Most of us probably combine something of each of these approaches. Even those of us who spend time researching aspects of the past bring some prejudices, expectations and hopes to our projects. When we read M.R. James's stories, or watch the TV dramatisations of them, we may be indulging our fantasies of the past to some extent. What was contemporary and ordinary for M.R. James is unfamiliar and quaint to us, evocative in a way it wouldn't have been to James and his contemporaries. This is brought out even more vividly in TV adaptations of the stories, in which characters wear period costumes, ride bicycles, carry carpet bags or battered suitcases, and read by candle or gaslight. Some of the pleasure we derive from watching their dramatisations may be of the same kind as that supplied by period dramas such as The Tudors, Downton Abbey and Poirot. What's going on here seems to be a watered-down version of ancientism, a nostalgia or fetishising of the past. We may look for meaning, magic and mystery in many places, sometimes finding them. A common motif in my childhood dreams was finding or being given precious things, treasures or toys. I'd wake from these dreams and find that these things had of course vanished. The same is said to happen with fairy gifts. They turn to dust in our hands when taken from the land of fairy. If the treasures we glean from the past are to have any real value, they must withstand the journey home. And further, their gleam must shed light on our everyday lives and enhance them, not dazzle them and make them seem dull in comparison. Detectorists, Mackenzie Crook's BBC comedy series about friends, Lance and Andy, who spend their spare time metal detecting in the hope of finding Saxon gold, is worth a mention here. Lance and Andy and their fellow detectorists might seem to be on a wild goose chase, their search for treasure an escapist pursuit designed to distract them from their dull jobs and troubled relationships. But what becomes clear as their stories unfold is that metal detecting for Lance and Andy is a way of connecting meaningfully with the past. At the end of the third series, Lance tells Andy that detectorists are time travellers. Metal detecting, he says, is the closest you'll get to time travel. See, archaeologists, they gather up the facts, piece the jigsaw together, work out how we lived and find the buildings we lived in. But what we do is different. We unearth the scattered memories, mine for stories, fill in the personality. Just as important as the layers of the past the detectorists uncover is the easy friendship that exists between them. And when it comes to the crunch, 
and Andy seems forced to choose between metal detecting and his relationship with his girlfriend Becky. It's Becky he chooses. Reconciled with her at the end of series one, he kisses her and tells her, I've found my gold. I'm Sharon Krauss, and this has been Preternatural Investigations.